0: and I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Juanced,
1: the show that challenges popular conceptions, thinks critically, examines independently, and most of all, seeks nuance.
0: Each episode features a different guest. We'll dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, tech, culture, and more connected to Israel and the Jewish world.
1: No talking points, no script, no agenda, just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us.
0: Join us as we explore, think, discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen
1: nuanced. You know like nuanced but with a j?
0: Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there in podcast land, and welcome to Juance, the show that brings you a nuanced exploration of Israel, the Jewish world, and beyond. I'm Benny Shoulder.
1: I'm Dan Pfefferman. We are very excited, after a long hiatus, to bring you another great episode of juance
0: Before we get going, I want to give a shout-out to our audience watching us today on Facebook Live. Thank you for tuning in, and for those of you listening later on on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and all of the other platforms, know that there is a live video version of the show, which you can check out on a weekly basis. It's available on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Juance Podcast. Check it out when we record or watch all our episodes in our YouTube channel, Juance Podcast, as well as our website, www.juance.com.
1: Also, make sure you are following us on Instagram, at Juanced on Twitter. We are at Juanced Podcast. And as always, make sure you subscribe to Juanced on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Does Tesla make a podcast yet? Of course they do. Probably does. Anywhere where you get your podcasts. (laughs) And uh, there are rumors out there um, in old, ancient Egyptian texts written in hieroglyphics that if you leave us a five-star review, it does make a difference. It definitely does. And I just want to say, dude, it's been a while. It's been a long while. It's been a long while. Before we jump into our thing, let's um, introduce our guest who is with us today, a, a very new friend that very I new. made, and this is part of the reason why it's been a while. That's right. So we are always on the road. Because <laughs> I'm always on the road. So we are lucky to have with us Rowan Osman, a Syrian-Lebanese peace activist, born and raised uh, between Damascus, or born in Damascus, raised in Lebanon, moved to Europe. Um, to study, to go to school. And uh, basically, the short story is after many years of being a Hezbollah fan um, and basically being brainwashed against people like you and me, Benny, uh, Rowan moved to Europe where she... Why would you want to be against me? <laughs> everyone's against <laughs> you. <laughs> and um, and uh, eyes were opened, minds were changed, hearts were won over. And uh, Rowan is now a very brave and bold peace activist uh, for peace between uh, the Arab world, specifically Lebanon and Syria and the Middle East. She now lives in Germany and uh, studies Jewish studies and Islamic studies in Heidelberg, if I'm not mistaken. She's also a pretty cool lady who I had the chance to uh, spend a week with in Europe. And part of what we'll talk about on the show is what we did during that week. How are you doing?
2: Um, hi, Dan. Hi, Benny. Um I'm fine i'm delighted to be with you guys uh, Shavuot-o.
0: Shavuot-o. uh Shavuot-o.
2: so thank you for the introduction it is true i used to be a big fan of hezbollah
1: was it the food what was it what brought you to hezbollah
2: the food what was it they The flags? can't they can't win you over <laughs> not the food <laughs> no. no actually uh, half of my family is Syrian Sunni. Mm. Uh, the other half, Lebanese Shiite,
1: Syrian Sunni, and Lebanese Shi. Okay, that's a nice combination.
2: And I grew up in the Bekaa Valley. Uh, my mom's family are also involved with Hezbollah. Still, um, as far as I know, not many uh, talk to me. Then, since I I would do work and study with Israelis now,
1: Uh-oh. so Uh-oh. most of
2: my family do not speak to me.
1: Are you okay with that? Uh,
2: Um, I I guess I told you when we were on the trip in Poland and it hurts uh, sometimes, but um, although I lost many family members and friends, I won many family members and friends, uh, those who agree with me. um, Most of them are Israelis. I'm always surprised how warm the welcoming is. Um, So All in all, I I do not regret what I'm doing. And I think it's my moral responsibility towards myself, towards future generations. Uh, I grew up uh, through many wars in Lebanon, so I don't think any child should go uh, through this. Not Palestinian, not Syrian, not Israeli. It's not their choice, and we can't change that. I mean, we can change the future of the Middle East.
1: I agree with you. Sorry for that blinding flash of light. That was not very pro piece of us. Uh, we're trying to play with the lighting in here. In the next studio, I promise we will have better lighting. I actually can't promise that, but I will do my best <laughs> to make sure we have better lighting. Um, so that was a a good intro, and we mentioned Poland, and we will talk about what that means in a second. Um, so, yeah, Benny and I we haven't ha- we haven't done an episode of the show in a while. It's it, it, it's been a it's been it's a been short a short hiatus. It's been
0: a short hiatus and before that there was another hiatus and I think that you know in in, in it, it kind of brings me to be, like think about all of the things that we've done and the topics that we've been in. I mean this is episode 62 uh and and the reason that I think we're on hiatus is just because we've become so busy in our day jobs and I and I think that when we started doing this show uh in 2020 it's crazy 2020 um You know, I was unemployed. You were, I don't even know what you were doing. I was trying to piece back my career together after COVID. Right. Uh, And it was a different place (laughs) and a different time. But man, we've done a lot of different, I mean, our first episode with Uri Pilachowski. Yeah. uh, You know, shout out to Uri. uh, Was... Before the Abraham Accords.
1: It was pre Abraham Accords, that's right. It
0: was the. We basically showed up, Rwan, at this guy's house. He lives in a settlement called Mitzpeh Yericho,
1: which he's, is. He is a rabbi, settler activist, spokesperson, educator, pro peace settler activist, if you've, heard, if you've heard of that kind of thing. No. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>.
2: <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, he's like an enigma wrapped in a mystery, wrapped in a. What is that?
0: Yeah, Yeah, yeah he's yeah. that guy. Basically, so we show up at this guy's house, and we we do our first podcast, but it was right before they were trying to decide, was Israel going to annex parts of the West Bank under right. the Trump peace plan?
1: Yeah. And that's why we went, We wanted to go to this guy, you know. To
0: get his perspective on it. So we go out there, and then, lo and behold, you know, the, Haber, the that didn't happen, and instead the Abraham Accords happened, and the trajectory of your life, Dan was totally changed. Like, yep. Totally changed. And, <laughs> and then like we would, and then the show, like our trajectory changed as well because, you know, because of the involvement that you you know had begun with with UAE and countries of the Abraham accords and because of my job being what it was you know we we pivoted to doing a lot of episodes that were about that topic but in addition to that we also did a lot of covid episodes and we did culinary episodes and we did episodes that had to do with Russia which also were like right before Ukraine so we didn't really <laughs>
1: Into we, the, we've had a few ups and downs yeah
0: we've had, we've had a lot of interesting
1: stuff but and then, uh, and then you had covid and then uh, and then i had covid and, and, and my whole house had covid the whole thing now this last week um i i still can't believe it's real we talk about this as if um you know rowan since i got back people are asking me like wait what did you do you know and it's almost like did, did we actually is that what we did last week so, so, of course, those of you who have been following the show for a while know that that I uh, head this organization called Shiraka, which tries to promote a warm, uh, positive people-to-people ties in the Middle East. We started out being uh, Israel-Gulf-focused. Um, we're actually very excited this week, uh, next week, to be sending our first Israeli delegation to Morocco, huge delegation. Um, cool. And an opportunity came up about a couple weeks ago. Uh, we were going to take a small delegation of people from the Arab world to March of the Living at Auschwitz. Now, for those of you who don't know what March of the Living is, this is a yearly solidarity march, basically, for the memory of the victims of the Holocaust. Um, It's been going on for a very long time. It's been going on since the 80s. Pre-COVID times, you would get about 10,000 people who show up at this every year. Um, Very powerful thing. Now, I've never been to poland i've never been to the concentration camps um i was supposed to go with the army I, I didn't have the chance and it's not something that you know it's it's not like a a fun trip it's not something you look forward to so i, I was always kind of really dreading it and um we decided at the last second to expand our delegation and we said um who can we get with you know when did we contact euro one eight days before <laughs>
2: Yes, and I thought uh, I was the exception. I did not know yeah. that the idea was that crazy that you contacted everybody on short
1: Almost everybody, except the Bahrainis. It was supposed to be Bahraini Emirati, and then, um, and long story short, we reached out through different networks, and we ended up getting to a wonderful, really fantastic group of people, including Rawan, including people from countries that Israel does not have relations with. Syria, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia. Um, we had We had Palestinian... Uh, who I also want to get on the show, Professor uh, Mohammed Dajani, who's a legend in his own right for for the brave stance that he's taken. And um, Yeah, he's eaten a lot of crap because of that. He has. And, and um, this was, wow. I don't even know how to be, I still haven't begun to digest well, this experience. When, when I learned, let's
0: say this way, when when I learned yeah. that you were going to Poland, uh, you know, I I remembered earlier conversations that you and I had even before Juanced where yeah, it was just you know because of uh, circumstances, I've been to Poland and I've been to the camps and I've been to you know basically see a lot of the sites of the Holocaust uh, a couple of times you know throughout my life, uh, and I knew that you hadn't been. Yeah. So I I was just you know. On the one hand I was very excited for you to have that opportunity when I learned that you were going on a personal level but then also the circumstances of what you were doing while you were there and with whom you were going mm. made it extra meaningful and and much more poignant to the entire experience because I mean, it
1: it was a different trip. But how did
0: you, how did you balance let's say like what you were doing there with the people that you were
1: there with with your own personal experience having never been there before? Mm. I don't know. How did, you know, and I was talking to you a lot about this throughout also, Rowan, right?
2: Absolutely. I must say, I will never forget Dan's face. First, he was really nervous before we get there. So there is the professional Dan who is trying to organize everything and preparing us for the trip. I've been to a concentration camp before. I know it's not a walk in the park, but you are making sure everybody's ready. And we're worrying about logistics. But you were talking to me uh, from time to time and you were dreading it. And the moment we arrived to Auschwitz, uh, there was a time, maybe 15 minutes, where Dan was pale, yellow. Mm. That was your own, like you were out of the group. You were having your own personal experience. I don't know if you were aware of that. I... I first
1: day i I knew i was out of it i knew i was definitely out of it and and um it was hard and uh, it it was not a typical experience most how long did you sorry that i'm interrupting but i
0: have to ask like how long did you have to prepare yourself for this trip
1: we've been working on it i knew it was coming you know months before um i knew that it was happening but we're so busy in the organization, and we keep going from operation operation, delegation to delegation, that I haven't, I didn't really have time to sit and process. So, now, knowledge-wise about the Holocaust, I'm, I'm very knowledgeable. Um, I didn't learn any, you know, except for details or personal stories, I didn't learn anything new on a macro level. I've, I've okay. read the books, seen the documentaries, I've been to Yad Vashem multiple times, um, but... Um, to be there is a, is a different yeah it's thing. very different and to be there with <laughs> with a group of people from the Arab world um, is insane it's it is insane um, it is insane I want I want to get back to that but l- let's take a step back here um, so we introduced you at the beginning Rowan and you are a Lebanese Syrian half Sunni half Shia um, who just joined a a group that's part Israeli and went to go visit Auschwitz and you're wearing people can see a star of David necklace on your shirt what what is your story let's let's find out who you are because there's a a lot of interesting stories here
2: yeah so. um so as I said I grew in many walls I grew up hiding in the pantry behind the washing machine. Listening to fighting constantly several times throughout my life. You you mean, you mean
1: wars, like physical fighting?
2: Well, yeah, wars. And you grow up learning those attacking us are the Israelis. It's always the Israelis, even when it's not, even during civil wars. It's the Israelis. It's, the Israelis. it's the Israelis' fault. So for me, it's automatic. You're my enemy. I never thought about it. This is how I grew up. And then in 2011, I wanted to open a wine bar in the old city in Damascus with a friend and a hotelier. And two weeks before we signed the contracts, the war started. I don't think it was a revolution. It started as a revolution, it was an uprising. Now it's chaos. Okay. So I left. I went to learn about wines in Europe, in France. Mm. And I landed in Strasbourg by chance. In a house, last-minute accommodation was right next to the synagogue. I didn't know what a synagogue is. I thought it's an interesting museum. And the house where I lived had nine bedrooms. Across the street, there was a grocery shop. And I went to what drew me to the shop is what we have in common. Spices. I thought all the ingredients are what I need, what I use. I did not connect the dots because I didn't know what this is. And I started, I filled my trolley and then I turned and funny enough, on our last day in Poland where you left us guys, we had dinner with some other Israelis. And I always say that in that moment in the grocery store, I've heard people talking and I went back to the living room in the Bekaa Valley to a moment where I was watching the story of Abraham with sacrificing his son it was in Hebrew. Hmm. You know that because your parents were thrown upon. What are you watching? And it, the TV was called Middle East, and I tell this story to too many people and they tell me there wasn't such TV ever. On the dinner, the last day in Poland, there's this guy my age. He's telling me about the TV, I'm like, damn, he knows it. Biblical stories, cartoons. Yes, that's what I used to watch. This is how I recognized that these people are Jews perhaps Israelis, and I had a panic attack. Mm -hmm. I was 26. I couldn't breathe anymore. I ran out, left everything, ran across the street, went up to my bedroom. I couldn't breathe. I was on the carpet, sweating, feeling my heart in my throat. Then I was talking to myself, I calm down. Calm down, breathe. And as I washed my face, it was the first time I asked myself, why? Why? Look, I turned when I heard Hebrew, and they were ultra orthodox, dressed in big black hats and yeah. their coats, and sideburns, and I panicked. When I asked myself why, they didn't say anything to me; they didn't even look at me. Why were they my enemy? Why was I scared? So first thing I established in my head: I was afraid that upon my return to Lebanon or Syria, I will have problems with Hezbollah. I was scared. One, two. I was worried they would, if they would know that I'm an Arab, they will attack me, hurt me, insult me. But this did not happen. So I had to calm myself, compose myself, return to the grocery store, because I knew I'm gonna see this man, the shopkeeper for a long time. And I did, I apologized. I said that I forgot my wallet. And he asked me where I come from. I guess he uh, understood Syria, Lebanon, he realized that I panicked because I realized they're Jewish. And that was it. He was very pleasant, helped Mm. me with my grocery. we become friends. I watched the Jews for a while. And I realized that there's nothing wrong with them. I like them, the way they treat each other, watching them for months, Mm. going to the synagogue after I understood what they do there. And I read about Hezbollah and the axis of resistance. I didn't share this with anyone for years. I read about it and I realized that it's, sometimes it's not Israel attacking us. And why did Israel inv- invade Lebanon? The story I always heard, I was born in Damascus because of the Israeli invasion. They attacked us. Reading what was happening in the 10 years prior to this invasion all the terror, uh, terrorist attacks. Reading this history changed my mind. And I was angry because the Jew is not my enemy. And after meeting so many Jews, I realized that I would rather stand by your side proudly. This is why I wear the Star of David. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been only maybe five, six months I wear it. And for me, it's not only a Jewish symbol. I would wear the menorah. At the Star of David is what you've chose to put that on the Israeli flag, and for me, Israel is a miracle. So I don't just stand by the Jew; I stand by the Zionist, by Israel, by what you've been able to achieve after two thousand years of bullying.
1: That's remarkable, um, and I'm always floored when we meet. Like really remarkable people like you who 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 not just think the way you think but are willing to say it out loud, um and how to come to those conclusions and where the rest of of your home society is you know on that kind of thinking, um, it's it's just remarkable. I, I have. Can to, I to go ahead?
2: Just add one thing. Yeah. You know what I find remarkable? Uh, you asked me. Um, there were these guys from Israel, 24. They wanted to interview us. Mm-hmm. So there's this guy, Ariel. Yeah. Um, he's interviewing me. And Ahmed. Ahmed takes a photo. And I realized the guy with Ariel has exactly my hair
1: <laughs> yeah. style. Yeah. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Mael. Mael. Uh, ben Mael. Ariel. Yeah.
2: One. And he asked me, why, do I, why am I wearing to start with David? He's astonished. Anyway, we finished the interview. And Ariel tells me, can I shake your hand? And he has wet eyes. And I say, sure, buddy. And then he's like, I felt the same. He's like, can I help you? So we're hanging for two minutes with strangers and he has wet eyes. That I find remarkable, but it also makes me angry. To me, in my mind, and now I study your studies, I meet all sorts of people from all around the world. You are touched. When someone is loving and kind and has understanding yeah. for your existence, yeah. this is wrong. This makes me angry. You are so used to people being okay, bigoted,
1: yeah.
2: that for I have friends in Israel who cry when I call them check on them when there's a terrorist attack. This is wrong. It makes them brings them to tears. You accept the fact that we're hateful. That our relationship, like there is no relationship. So it is the way it is. No, more people should be like me. And this is my responsibility because I know. I. To me, you are my family. All of you, it's the way you treat me as well. I know there must be Israelis who are not that kind, who are irritating. I haven't met any yet. I'm not naive. I'm pretty sure there are some. But I don't think it's fair for you to feel this way.
0: Can I ask you a question? It's sure. it, we've had this uh, sort of. A, uh, I won't. Say, I won't say that we've met met you know people with similar stories to you, but I have in the course of life met people who have discovered you know had epiphanies about uh, the conflict in the Middle East or or Israel or whatnot, and it's always interesting to me because in the course of my own transformation, you know, I at some point in time I was very right wing, and then I became very left wing, and now I'm very center. I never felt when I when I like had some sort of a change of mind or a transformative moment politically speaking I, I never felt like s- the other side or or a different ideology that I was switching from one to the other like betrayed me in any way and when I think of what you've mentioned here I think you know here you are living your life just a normal per I mean you're not a normal person you're you're you know everybody's a remarkable person but you're you know you're living a very normative life growing up in in you know the middle east in lebanon you get to europe and then you have all these sort of epiphany moments and, and you make these discoveries about uh, about jews and about israelis but you're also making an epiphany and a discovery about yourself and about where you come from and the people that raised you and the society that you came up in and i'm wondering what that sort of crisis or is it a crisis rather you know what what that it's sort gotta of it maybe an identity crisis to to when you look back at your, at, your, at, your, at your life, all of those years growing up and see that in the context of that time, I mean, what does that do now that you've, that you've sort of gone through a, a wall, so to speak?
2: Uh, I am a normal person, but in that sense, in that respect, I am different. I grew up in a French Catholic school in Lebanon and um, I never believed the stories they told me. Um, And they say that the Muslims are lying. And then there's the Sunni part of the family telling that they are right, the rest are lying. The Shiites, same apply. They're all accusing each other of lying. So I never felt at ease. And the Lebanese hate the Syrians, the Syrians hate the Lebanese. So I never really belonged there. And they always tell me you are so European because I am very liberal in the way I think. So coming to Europe and just Finding out that my people are the ones who are deceitful and bigoted in some parts of what they told me, I've been brainwashed. This is not fair. I felt like a fool. I was angry. The more I read, the more I was angry. And you know, I decided to write my story like, write about the Jew, my perception of the Jew before and after I came to Europe. When I was in that box and when I was out and had the freedom to had access to information.
1: This is a book you're working on now, right?
2: Yes. What's the name Absol- of the
1: forthcoming book?
2: Um, I don't know. My like the title was for me "Beyond the Golden Heights," mm. but that's related to my Syrian identity. It doesn't have to be that way. See, I was angry, and then I met this person, also by chance, online. I met Yossi Klein Halevi,
1: yeah,
2: who's He's become a, my mentor. A
0: beautiful person.
2: I adore him hes He transformed me and his guidance helped me calm down. Helped me accept that this is my people and then that this is people, this is how people are. The Jewish people are different to me. The Israelis are different. They went through a different experience and they chose to deal with it differently. I don't feel that I have an identity crisis. It took a while until I could, until I accepted the cost. Saying this, doing what I do means losing a lot of family members, a lot of friends, and that's okay. It hurts at the beginning, but that's okay. I also have a son who's in the ninth grade, and he accompanied me all the time mm. when I visit a synagogue. When I returned to the synagogue, his class, school, I asked for a visit. I explained what happened. My son was eight; he was with me. In 2018, I explain everything, not because I want to involve him politically, but because my task, I'm a tiny, normal person, and I will do my best until I die. But then he has to carry on and his children after him. I took my son out of the Middle East and brought him here. But when I listen to stories of people who, children who don't go to school since eight years in camps in Jordan and in Lebanon, Syrians, they did not choose this. When I listen to my Israeli friends telling me how they're hiding their children in shelters, whenever there's whatever with, with Hamas, this is not fair. I can't help these children. I only saved my son. But does that mean that I enjoy my life here? The luxury I have and I forget about them? Them is me when I was a child. Someone had to help me because I was a child. Is,
0: is there a feeling, both when you're thinking about those children, and when you're thinking about just all sorts of people all over the Middle East, where you, you kind of want to like physically and mentally liberate them from the constructs that they're living in?
2: Yes, this is why I'm studying Jewish studies and Islamic studies. I don't want whatever people taught me in my family. I'm learning um, from a neutral perspective. It's never neutral, but I'm learning what's available. I process this data for a good reason because I have to speak to younger adults and the younger ones listen to me when they tell me never. The Israeli is my enemy. They they took the golden hides from us. And then they're like, chill, dude. When you go to war, you have to calculate you, with you the possibility of losing. <laughs> right. And it's a strategic point. You use it to attack them. Yeah. They're stronger. They're going to keep it
1: it's it's the way it goes you might lose um we we might lose too one day it's also true we have to take that into account um let me ask you do you today i mean you do you ever first of all do you ever go back to lebanon or syria last time
2: was five years ago um i used to always go back to beirut at least I went to Syria uh, three times, like uh, the first three years of war until 2014, 15, I guess, to Lebanon a bit longer because my son's family, he has a lot of family in Beirut. But at a certain point, I had to choose. I'd rather work with you, work with Israelis. And I can talk to people online, but I will not go to Beirut stupidly and get arrested. Yeah. Especially that I make comments sometimes uh, on social media, and Hezbollah fans or Hezbollah members, they make screenshots and they say she's a Zionist. If I go at the airport, I will have problems. I know this. Yeah. And but a Zionist is an insult.
1: Sure, of course.
2: In 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 I grew up in an environment that's very hostile to Jews, and Zionist is an insult. And slowly, on, on
1: American campuses too, apparently.
2: Ah, that's a very interesting point. Yeah. A completely different point. Yeah. In Germany, for example, there are uh, laws against anti-Semitism. This does not exist in the US.
1: Uh, they're trying to pass laws uh, mm-hmm. against anti-Semitism, but the, it, it's hinged on the debate of whether anti-Zionism is considered anti-Semitism.
2: Yes, big the, question. The
1: State Department definition says it is, uh, obviously, but there are very vocal left-wing Jewish elements in America who are against including anti-israel criticism and anti-zionism as part of the definition of anti-Semitism. what do you think you know what it's I wrote about this once a long time ago and and, and I'd like to think that I in theory, in theory, I think you could be anti-Zionist without being anti-Semitic. In practice, I've never seen it. Right. Um, I don't see, you know, and and where could it come in? It could come in to a place where you say, I don't think any any state should be limited to this ethnicity or religious group right. or linguistic. You could be like whatever. a true anarchist. Like a true, all borders should be open, nobody should have. if you're If you're coming from that place... Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll I'll give it to you. You can be anti-Zionist, but are you gonna go also protest any other country in the world that limits their, you know, certain rights or certain aspects of their country to that ethnic group? If you're gonna do that equally, and the problem is, I don't see anybody doing that to anybody against Israel. Um, and, and so in that sense, it, the fact that it's also almost always accompanied by this this obsession, this like religious obsession against. Anything Israel does, taking everything Israel does out of context, uh, um, yeah. over overly critiquing, making up blood libels and lies and exaggerations. So, and then, and
0: then for many of those people to either be actively involved in or supportive of actual terrorist groups, you know, and exactly. Terrorist well, and I was going to go somewhere else too. I was going to say, you know, attacks on Jewish communities
1: that are not living in Israel. Also, yeah. The second you then start yeah. attacking Jews outside of Israel, that it's just you, you know, know like, uh, that, that's anti-Semitism, and so. I guess my my answer is in in theory, it is possible. in practice, I've never seen it.
2: I'm, I'm gonna share with you a fact interestingly. Um, in uh, August last August, um I had an interview with a Jewish activist. She's German and um, a German economist, but he lives in the in a street called Zonenallee, and it's the Arab street in Berlin. He made a lot of videos of the demonstrations which happened after, like, or during and after uh, the last uh, war with Hamas. And the interview's topic was, um, we live in a democracy, that's Germany. And if you want to make a political protest against Israel, you can go in front of the embassy. Right. Throwing Molotov cocktails on synagogues, yeah. that is is anti-Semitic. Yes. And in August, The Bundestag passed a law um, which is very consequent if those uh, like the Arabs who join on such demonstrations who don't have the German nationality yet, if accused of anti-Semitic acts of any kind, they would be deprived of ever obtaining the German nationality. Mm. That was interesting. For a good reason, and they should do the same in the USA. You cannot... Attack a Jew for wearing a kippah, yeah, mulke, or you can't. If it's only against Israel, then you demonstrate like we always do in front of the Russian embassy, right? With your slogan, but just attacking people—that's pure hatred.
1: That is, and and um, and I think that yeah, that's a that's a differentiation I'm willing to accept. Uh, obviously, not agree with, but I'm willing to accept. I always thought it was in, like if. People get really caught up in like, okay, well
0: where's the line? Yeah. Where is the line? The line for me is like, would I be proud to find out that my son did that?
1: Well, some people are.
2: Uh, So it's like and and then and then
0: it's like, well, I have a five year old. You said that you have a a ninth grade. Like, would you be proud to learn that your son slapped a random guy in the street? For whatever whoever it was, it doesn't make a difference. Like some, it, some people be, are, if could that be a person
1: is, you know. I, I not, know, and I, that and that's crazy. It that's is crazy. crazy
0: because I think to myself, like, no, you shouldn't be slapping random people in the street. I don't. They're care
1: not who they are. They're not random. They're zios. They're Yes, and then they're subhuman. They're they're not human. They're not human. They're, you're doing a, right. What um, <laughs>
0: I wouldn't even be happy if you slapped an animal.
1: Uh, definitely not animal. No, definitely. Um, but Jews are worse than Jews are worse than animals.
2: No, Jews. I can't listen to this and just like no. But, unfortunately, uh, something similar to what you're saying, guys. During this spurge of uh, terrorist attacks in Israel lately.
1: We had one after Independence Day. Horrific. horrific Yeah, really. Like, really horrific one.
2: The kind of reactions you see, like in Ramallah, they were distributing sweets for free. Exactly. And I wonder, these men, these young men, when they go home, the problem is their mothers say, well done. But if it's a Jewish mom, even when settlers go crazy and attack someone, let's say a group of five guys, young guys, attack the Palestinian, I'm pretty sure when they go home, their mom is not proud of them. They will get a slap. You don't do that on the street. You don't break somebody's window. You don't throw a lot of cocktail. Why is that attitude still celebrated? And even worse, in Arab me- in the Arab media, they always tell half the story. Mm. They always show you, the Israeli soldier, what he's doing to the child. They don't say, how did the child come here? Oh, right. What was he yeah. doing? Where are the men with him? What did they do? It's not like the Israeli soldiers are crazy and they're trained just to randomly attack uh, Palestinians. Poor ladies and...
1: I, I try to explain that to people uh, when they're willing to listen, and, and once you kind of even that little sentence that you just said, you know, w- what happened right before? Okay, yeah, there are checkpoints. We I, I got into it with, um, I, was, I was we were on a Sharaka speaking delegation at a, a string of universities, and we were at UConn. Um, I'm holding, I'm holding the Yukon pen that they gave me, University of Connecticut, University of Connecticut, and there were a couple of uh, um, uh, anti-Israel activists. Um. They call themselves pro-Palestine activists, but I've never seen them do anything good for the Palestinians, so I always call them anti-Israel activists. Um, and one of them was willing to stick around and talk to me afterwards and had a civil conversation. He was Syrian, um, also left because of the war. And um, we actually had a very interesting conversation. And, you know, the things, like you said, you have to understand, you know, the, the checkpoints, the harassment, the this and that. And, and, and you know, I said, first of all, they they brought up things like, why are Israeli troops... Uh, um, uh, doing a genocide of Palestinians every day. I said, do you know the statistics? Do you know how many people are actually killed by Israel? You know, it's it's like less than the number of murders in Chicago in like a week, like the number of, and, and, and if it's a military, it's a military conflict. Like anyway, we got into this whole thing, but then, you know, it's, we, he brought up the checkpoints. I said, do you understand why there are checkpoints? Do you understand that there are terrorist attacks on a regular basis? And re- oh, I didn't think about that. You know, it's like, yeah, uh, what do you mean? You didn't think about that? Like
0: how, well, yeah, and, and look, I, we've all seen enough. Of, you know, uh, what's that guy's name? Rudy. Rudy Rock. Yeah, Rudy, yeah. We, we've seen enough Rudy videos Rush, like that to understand. Rushman. Like a lot of the talking points that people that are like they just don't think about it. They're, they they're don't just th- well, it's not that they don't think about it. It's that they also don't think about it, but they're also very, very, very poorly informed, and they've yeah. been fed a certain. I won't even call it a narrative. It's just like it, it's there's Script. a blind ignorance yeah, of yeah. anything Sort of, you know, what what is the actual fabric of reality that Ru- we're dealing
1: with over here? And, Ru- you know, Roano, Ru- uh, how how many people when you engage? I mean, you try to engage with the Arab world online, and I a,
2: wear the Star of David exactly for that reason. Do
1: do they not so assume? They, do they not assume you're just Jewish when you wear that?
2: Uh, those who know me, and I have like a thousand friends on Facebook. I occasionally get the crazy one tells me, "Ah, you're a barking, dog for the Zionist." People who don't know me. Otherwise, those who know me are willing to engage. Um, we have conversations and I always realize that they don't know enough. When they tell you when they use words like genocide, apartheid, yeah. they have no idea what they're oh, talking about. I know it. The check the checkpoint, the wall. Yes, let's let's read about it. Why did this happen? No, the genocide. Why is it necessary?
1: Genocide. The, the
0: genocide claim was the... always really funny to me because it was like, if if we were perpetrating a genocide, we're like the worst perpetrators oh of God, genocide yeah, ever. Yeah. We, we're like failing so horribly at doing this. It's taken us, you know, fifty plus yeah, for, years. For having the most seventy-five years in of, the world. This is of trying really to do genocide. it. You know, the, what the Germans could 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 do in you know five years, we, we've, we've we've taken uh-huh. seventy-five which is which is ludicrous because it's like if if that was really the aim of israel it could take like what like a month be done with it
2: uh, very look, morbidly serious so, yeah. yeah one one argument like if the jews are this evil monstrous conspirators whatever if they were really that bad they would maybe uh, use this hatred and this skill against the germans but they they are not that evil. There is an Israeli embassy in Germany and a German embassy in Israel. <laughs> Israelis so love Germany. Are,
0: How many Israelis there in Berlin? 100,000. Um, ridiculous number.
2: Yeah, but they are... They can reach a reconciliation. Yeah. They can forgive. And they stand proud. They stand tall. They got over what happened. I don't know if you remember, uh, Dan, we were taking a picture with some people, some friends of ours. And then there's this guy, if you recall, he told us, don't smile in Auschwitz.
1: I I might have said that, actually. (laughs) No.
2: (laughs) Another guy uh, said, don't smile. We were sad, but we are smiling. Even uh, afterwards, when we went for dinner and Nia was dancing, everybody was like, we were in Auschwitz. Yes, it's tragic but look around you. It was filled with Jews, successful Jews. You have a scar, but you carry on, you keep going. Now, on the other hand, in the Arab world, uh, there is this victim culture. Lamenting gets you support and it works magically. It works in Europe, it works in America. I play the victim role and people pat me on the back. Even if what I'm telling is not exactly accurate, and it's exaggerated, sure. and it's uh, the produce of uh, Pollywood. People don't question, they just pat me on the back and they support me and let's boycott Israel and punish it. When people accuse me of being a traitor, a Zionist, because they love the Palestinians, and I ask them, I work for peace. I I feel it makes me cry uh, to know that children in Gaza are killed. My Like Israeli children are hiding. It makes it hurts me, and I try to do something about it. I, I speak to people. What do you do? Like you are sitting in a man, calling the Jews dogs, calling us who are peacemakers traitors. What do you do for the Palestinians? Mm.
1: How do we Nothing. reach? How do you reach people? How how? First of all, do you, do you feel since you started trying to engage with people, um, are people more receptive than they were a few years ago? And I'm curious, you know, something, we had another gentleman with us on the trip, um, Pierre, who's uh, Lebanese and um, runs a very interesting, how does he call it? Like a a kind of a liberal Lebanese website um, um, called, what's it called?
2: Um, It's called Transparent. and Middle East Transparent, Yeah. yeah. Pierre is based in Paris. This yes. is what, like, just to explain to the viewers, yeah. this is why he could accompany us.
1: Um, right, right. To, to be clear, those who came from countries that don't have relations with Israel came via other countries, um, Lebanon, Syria, and uh, Saudi Arabia. And um, we, we were supposed to have Pakistanis join us also. Why did they have to go through another country? They were traveling to Europe. Oh, no, no. The-
2: we are based in Europe. They're, they're based yeah they're yeah. based yeah. in Europe. Okay.
1: it's just easier it's easier for for people like Rowan based, based in Europe no, I think you meant like the they States. were traveling from Saudi Arabia to Europe and uh, they had to go through another the, the Saudi Arabian is based in Dubai but that didn't matter cuz yeah. he he could have come either way but um, mm-hmm. how receptive are people starting to become to your message um how you know uh, one of the things that was said was also a lot of people in Lebanon and Syria kind of started waking up Uh, about Hezbollah, about Syria, the regime, about Iran, uh, especially with the civil war in which Israel is not involved. And you see the destruction that these actors, Muslims, are doing to other Muslims or minority groups, Arab minority groups. And so, you know, when Israel's, uh, uh, if anything, Israel's trying to provide, you know, we had one gentleman who's also Syrian from the Golan, the Syrian Golan, and he said his mind was changed about Israel when he saw Israel trying to provide medical aid to people on the border. So how prevalent do you think people are, or how receptive are people becoming to the reality, to the kind of the Sharaka message also that, you know, we're trying to change the region and we're trying to capitalize on, on maybe an opening of, of people opening their minds a little more. Or is this, um, is this a fantasy as, as a lot of my more skeptical friends want to say to me?
2: No, then I say to your skeptical friends, it is reality. What made it possible is internet. One. Two, the fact that Hezbollah joined the Assad regime against the uh, rebels um, was crucial. It was important because Hezbollah shot itself in the foot. Everyone was like, you want to... You're supporting the underdog against the Israelis. That's what you promote. But now you're killing oppressed people, and they're oppressed by a dictator. His father was a dictator. He is a dictator. And you're supporting him. At the same time, he has double standards. In Bahrain, he supports uh, those revolting. In Syria, he suppresses them. Mm. Actually sends people to kill them. At the beginning, he denies it, but then they're exposed because their fighters are killed so, and internet helped expose them. And then he turned the tables and said, yeah, yeah we are helping Assad. That made people despise them across the Arab world.
0: What does that do to their legitimacy in Lebanon at the moment?
2: Oh, even Pierre talked about it over dinners. Maybe, I don't know, Dan, you're yes. sitting a bit far, but you know that. Uh People in Lebanon realize this is an existential fight against Hezbollah. The problem is Hezbollah is yet has become very strong, so stronger than the Lebanese army. But everyone in Lebanon, including the Shiites, know that they went too far. And they are executing an agenda that serves Iran, not the Lebanese. And if you look at Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, how miserable people are, and what they've done in Yemen, um, I think very, very, very few Arabs are still in favor of whatever Hezbollah has to offer. And yet they're, they're still gone. very
0: militarily strong, which means that they have a lot of people in their service as well. Who, who are the, who are their supporters today? Like who was a what? What is the profile of the average? 2022 hezbollah supporter after everything is said and done
2: yeah those who are still with them are people who are on the paycheck hmm. uh, meaning you're so poor you don't care you want to feed your family they're paying you in us dollars the economy is done i grew up in lebanon 18 years we moved back to Syria, I was only born in Damascus, and then we moved back when I was 18 because my father decided the economic situation is so bad, we have to leave, and it started back then, so maybe 2002, and now after 20 years, I don't think we, there is a similar economic crisis in modern history. Yeah, Something it's, it's similar a failed to the situation. Yes, It's a failed state. Absolutely, absolutely but they still can pay their supporters in U.S. dollars. We're not talking about millions, but we're talking about people who support them. This is not the problem. That you can compensate. The problem is that ideologically they are the strongest. Still? Think about their people, their surrounding, uh, the very core of Hezbollah. Think of any people you like around the world Think of a mother who celebrates the death of her children. The women of Hezbollah cheer. They dance on streets when their children uh, are martyrs, when they receive the news, which is against human nature, but they've been trained to do that. Such a mother is much stronger than me in many ways, but she's a monster. Mm. We have to work on that. They are getting fewer and fewer, but the majority is not those people. And if you give people an alternative, if you give them job opportunities, they will ditch them. Exactly like the Palestinians. If there's a viable economic plan which any authority would allow, those who have jobs and careers, who have, who can envisage a future, uh, are different from those who have nothing to lose. They will not fight. They will choose to have happy, healthy families. Right, and you can talk to them and establish peace.
1: It seems, <laughs> and, and yet, I mean, and yet, it just goes back to. I remember reading a study at some point that said the majority of terrorists, uh, specifically in, in the in the Muslim world, at some point they found was actually middle class, educated people, and not poor people. Um, I look at the kind of terrorism that's happening here in Israel, and it's a different context. But these are people with jobs, the ones who had access to Israel, whether they snuck in or this. I mean, I, you know, I'm I'm torn on this, and I don't have all the data, and I'm not, uh, you know. But how how do you keep reaching people? What needs to be done? Let's say forget the Palestinian issue for now, because I think that's a whole different issue. But in Lebanon yeah. and Syria. How, how can we reach more people like you um, to get them to just open their minds a little bit, to get them, I mean, Lebanon, for example, if Lebanon decided to open up ties with Israel, mm. imagine the economic bounce back it could have. Imagine, the, Absolutely. Im- imagine what would happen if, if, you know, but how do you get rid of Hezbollah? I mean, that's the question, is how do you sideline Hezbollah? And then you would have, Israel, you would have the Abraham Accords countries, um, ever you the U.S. coming in, you you would be able to reconstruct Lebanon. You would have trade with a very prosperous neighbor to the south, something you haven't had recently. Oh, I see, Haisam is joining us. Hi, Hysim. Um So you know, I'm I'm just trying to think out loud here. Is like, uh, is that message coming through? How do you speed that up? How do we get a, a thousand of you, Rowan?
2: Um, internet. Internet. And just let me say something. You are right that sometimes terrorists are middle-class educated people. This is um, where ideology plays a big role. They are convinced that they are the righteous ones and they sacrifice um, their good life, their well-being for an ideology which is uh, For that to happen, for peace to come, to to happen in the Middle East, we have to annihilate the Israeli existence, get rid of the Jews. It's an ideology, and we can work on it using internet, Uh, talking to people and showing them that the Israeli doesn't have a third leg, they're not enemies, they don't hate you. And speaking about Lebanon in particular, there is something very interesting. When I started working and studying with Israelis, I realized like it was a decision. I was very aware of it. I cannot go back to Lebanon. So for sometimes family members who are open-minded, they say, isn't it like unfair to Adam, to my son? You can't take him to to Beirut, to the beach. I mean, the food is fantastic. Lebanese are awesome. But then I always say, I always say it's not a problem because I can go to Israel instead. It's the same food, same beaches, the same love for life, the nightlife. I think if there's or when there's peace between Israel and Lebanon, you'll realize they'll be best friends. The the culture is very similar.
1: I totally get that. Um, I totally get that. And, and, you know, every Lebanese I've ever met uh, abroad and a lot of Syrians, too, it's such a similar culture.
0: I have to say, and i'm and I'm listening to all of this, and it's i'm I agree with everything that we're all saying. and i'm on I'm on you know, I, I can't even say I'm on board with this. It's like this is obviously yeah. where where I'm at yet. and dan, you'll 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 appreciate this and understand exactly what I'm talking about. You sit here in Israel, especially in times like we've been going through for the past couple of months where there's this like low low level low grade wave of terror that's happening every once in a yeah. while. and you see how for every wonderful, amazing story that we've experienced over the past two years with the Abraham Accords and with your interaction with Shraka and with meeting people like Rowan and others, it's it's like there are still, it's seemingly hundreds of thousands of people within our midst here in this country, in this land, yeah. who are so easily influenced by calls of like, the Jews are trying to take over Al-Aqsa, and, yeah. and, which is like total bullshit because that's not like... That's yeah, not it, the, it, It's just so could disconnect. And from and reality. and it does I mean, but, but it doesn't matter because everybody know everybody that's in power knows it's bullshit. Yet you have people in in Ram in in the in the Islamic Party saying things that people in Hamas are saying about how the Jews are taking over. And even the king of Jordan is coming out and saying the Jews need to be the Israelis need to be careful about their behavior on Harabai, on the Temple Mount. And it's like, wait, wait a second. You know, you're the king of Jordan. You know that this is not what we're doing because you're the sovereign on the on the Temple Mount. Yeah. You know that what you know what the arrangements are. Yet you're saying these things to get out in front of the street. Who is saying it so that you don't appear to be against the street? So it's very discouraging because it's like there's this perpetual,
1: Yo, Why can't we dissemination yeah. of
0: garbage that comes out of all sorts of leaders' mouths? And you want to say like, what? We are responsible adults here. We're having this conversation, and we know what's what's real and what's what's BS. And it's like, where are the actual responsible yeah. adults that are in leadership that can come out and say,
1: "Hey, uh, enough." And and I gotta say, you know, I had a lot a lot of these skeptical friends, and everyone came to me because you know I'm, I'm very well known in Israel as being someone very actively promote. It's literally my job is to roll the Abraham Accords. And uh, yeah. after the the first or second time of of riding on the Temple Mount, so. Uh, every, every Ramadan radicals, uh, Hamas-backed radicals, try to instigate trouble on the Temple Mount where the Al-Aqsa yeah. Mosque is. And Israeli police have to come in and instill order. Um, and, of course, what gets to the new, the international news, is the Israeli police storming the mosque yeah. and not the buildup to it, like, like you were saying, right, Rowan? Yeah. And people, and so the first thing that came out is cries, certainly on social media, you know, Israeli troops trying to take over, kick the Muslims out of the Temple Mount, et cetera, et cetera. What shocked us here is what you were saying, Benny. the 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 Prime Minister of Jordan, the Palestinian leadership, of course, but even, well, even the King too. Even the King, even I believe some of the governments involved in the Abraham of Cords, our friends in the Gulf, um, were were condemning Israeli actions on the Temple Mount. And the question that I want to I want to throw to you here, and you're obviously I, we we never build you as a Middle East expert, but from your take, from your take, from understanding the culture, from maybe, I don't know, the, the modes of thinking, Benny's question here, why for would it help and why aren't the leaders, at least of the moderate camp, we keep talking about the moderate camp in the Middle East, all come out and say Israel is not trying to take over the Temple Mount, let's all calm down, discredit the radicals, and everyone criticize the radicals and not the Israeli police was just trying to instill order, as any government would have to do. Why? Why can't that happen? Is that just is that too wishful of thinking? Um, would it help if the king of, of Jordan, course. if Assisi, the king of Jordan, uh, uh, um, MBZ, you know, MBZ, uh, uh, um, you know, I don't know. MBS, all of these leaders would would stand in front of the microphone and say, we condemn Hamas and the radicals for what they're doing at Al-Aqsa, and we stand with the Israeli government for trying to instill order. Would it change anything? Would it help? Would it...
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Because um, in the Arab world, um, it's very rare to find people who read. Uh, We are used to, if you read, then you read the Qur'an basta like the quran and most people don't understand what they're reading they just believe the sheikh he whatever his interpretation is and sometimes he has a very modest understanding of things of life anyway um so and our education system does not um, um, is not uh, designed to create critical thinking Um, So, for example, uh, something you don't necessarily know as an Israeli, in Syria, um, this is how you study for your exam. You take the books, you have to study them by heart, and if you want a perfect note, you have to write exactly Mm -hmm. what's written in the book. It was the case in Lebanon until, I believe, in year 2000, the new curriculum was introduced, and then this was not allowed anymore. You have to write your understanding of the text. In Syria, as far as I know, this was the case until I grew uh, until I was in my twenties. They do not want you to think for yourself. Mm. Now, what do you do with this? And we're talking about hundreds of millions of people. Um, you need the leaders changing their mind. They listen to the leader. They listen to Hassan Nasrallah. He tells them, oh, maybe it was the Israelis who caused the explosion in the port of Beirut, that's it, then it's the Israelis. Then they tell you, it's it was obviously the Israelis. Why? How is, how is it obvious? Where is the investigation? Where is the proof? It's obvious because it makes sense, wishful thinking. Or it fits what I would like to believe. This is nonsense. If a leader comes and says, what Hamas is doing is bullshit, it really helps, because it stops 16 and 17 years old from thinking Hamas is the hero. They are the ones with balls, the ones who stand up for the Israelis. This is wrong. They are using you. They're sacrificing you. What they're doing is not beneficial to anybody. So this populist approach has to change. Now, I don't think that I know or you know better than some of the Arab leaders, but if they oppose these extremists, some of them end up being killed.
1: You know, I, I remember last year, two years ago, when Hamas attacked us out of Gaza, and and we responded. Yeah. I don't recall if there was overt support from the Arab governments, but nobody criticized.
0: Yeah, it was like a cold shoulder, basically. That was my yeah, nobody my criticized
1: Israel's but... actions, and yet when we have this constant thing regarding the Temple Mount. You know, I'm, I'm just, I'm waiting, I'm waiting for, for, for that one brave Arab leader to be like, guys, what are you doing? They're, you know,
0: stop it. Just <laughs> like, you know, in a weird paradoxical way, it also encourages crazies on our side as well. They're like, I, I, and I've heard this, like people like Itamal ben kind of type in and his supporters will come out and say, if they're accusing us of taking
1: over the Temple Mount, let's just take over the Temple Mount. If they're going to respond, as <laughs> well, if we're doing this? Yeah, why don't we no, just do this? I know I, I hear a lot. I, I do. I do know a lot of Ben Gurion supporters, and uh, Itamar Ben Gvir is, is probably the most far-right Israeli politician. Um, serves serves in Knesset, um, and um, he's really classy, by the
0: way. He shows up at every at, at the scene of every terror attack, literally while it's kind of like still being cleared to make a statement. So he's.
1: Um, yeah, that's totally um, classy. Totally classy. Um, and, and, and no, but they say, "Where's your peace treaty?" And it, like it's like it's my peace treaty. Where's your peace treaty, right? Where Where are they now? Yeah. They, when we need them, where are they, right? And you know, t- to say like, "Look, uh, they're sometimes with this They're sometimes not. It's complicated. It, it's 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 not a compelling argument. I I can make the argument if you give me five minutes, but if you give me thirty seconds pressed up against the wall, it's it's like, okay, where are yeah. they? And you know." Like like Benny's point, I'm sure the King of Jordan knows that we're not trying to take over the Temple Mount. So this yes. is this is like something that he, we here in Israel want to see is like, guys, we're, nobody's trying to take over the Temple Mount. Like literally, nobody's trying. There's not anyone. Right. Not, forget mainstream, even right wing in Israel, who's trying to take over the Temple Mount. Like we are very fine right. with Muslim worship in Al-Aqsa also.
0: If we were <laughs> again, it's like the genocide point. It's like if we were trying to take over the Temple Mount, I guess we're doing a really bad job of it.
1: Because yeah. there's like a whole division of tanks, like yeah. t- ten, you know, kilometers away. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I wanna, I wanna go back to what, to, to, to last week. So you, you get this call. Do you want to join this group, this Arab delegation, and a few Israeli Jews to go to Auschwitz? What's the first thing that comes into your mind?
2: Yes.
0: <laughs> sounds like fun.
2: <laughs> no, it's not fun. I told the story in Poland. The first time I went to Dachau, that was a concentration camp. When we went to Auschwitz and come on, we have to, we we learned something from Pauline. We went to a death facility. So when I went to Dachau, I I was shattered, I was floored. And that was a private visit. And I told the Arabs and the Israelis on that trip, that the Jews were comforting me. They were consoling me. They thought maybe I lost my family to the Nazis. But I wasn't, I, I wasn't crying because of that. I was crying out of shame. Maybe you got so used to the story that you forget. It's a massive event yeah. where people were imported from Portugal to come and die. Whether they're productive, sometimes geniuses, sometimes very peaceful village people. It is a massive story. It's a shaming that humanity allowed it to happen. And we humans did it to other humans. For me, we are all involved. But for Israelis, they're just like, oh, it's okay, it's fine. They don't know. It. Like if I tell them I'm Syrian, we we are Holocaust deniers. <laughs> what? Going to Auschwitz with Arabs and Israelis, for me, since the Abraham Accords happened, actually since Trump, the crazy, took over, and Jared Kushner came with this plan, I knew something big was going to happen. Sometimes it takes some crazy people to pull this through. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And I knew that someone will bite into it. And the Abraham Accords were signed. I'm happy and I'm very optimistic. So going with Arabs and Israelis to Auschwitz—that was yes. If anyone would do it and not be shy about it, proud me. If I don't go, who else? Yeah. So for me, it was yes, yes. And I told my professors, "I'm gone." And they're like, "Where to? The march of the Yes, go." So
0: let, let me ask you the question though: you, you, you studied, you know, Jewish studies. So you even before. And I don't know. This this obviously wasn't your first time visiting these these places. You just mentioned that you were in Dacca and things like that on a private visit. Um, but I would have to imagine that even before you visited Dacca or, or other places for the first time, you know, you were studying Jewish studies, and as a result, you were aware of these you know size and scale of these sorts of events. Uh, just just like I would have been growing up in America before I ever visited them and I saw them for myself. Um, were there anybody on? your delegation now that aren't or that were not as initiated to it and for them it was like truly the first time they'd ever heard of these things or seen them or they confronted uh, their previous denial and, and now they had to you know, face the facts. Was was that anything or was, or was
1: everybody there kind of already? I don't think we had any, we didn't have any deniers. I,
2: exactly. I was going to say I was going to start with that. Nobody mentioned that. ah I was skeptical. I think they all accepted like prior to the visit that it happened but I don't know about you Dan but most people I noticed were making pictures of um, the hair kept behind for me it's the most uh, cringe yeah yeah cringe cringe for me it's cringe I wouldn't take a photo of that they were like taking photos and it was important An insight. Like afterwards, I realized, yes, that was important for them to capture that moment and show it to others. For me, I would never. It's cringe. No, I want out. They collected hairs when people, politicians, say it didn't happen. Ah, who can archive, document things better than the Germans? When they do something, they do it properly. Yeah. They would profit from tampering with evidence. If they say six million, if they estimate six million, it is six million. They kept the hairs, the glasses, the teeth. So, I what I observed that people were shocked, like yeah, it's, having it, cold sweats.
1: You know, all the people that came with us, I think for the most part were, were educated people, some more, some less, um, worldly people, some more, some less. But all, you know, you are not going to go on this trip if you're not willing to to learn. Right. And, but I think, I think what we saw from a lot of the people, I think you're one of the exceptions. I think Dajani, who had been there, was an exception. Um, you know, uh, Mohammed Kabiya, who's an Israeli Bedouin, grew up in the Israeli education system, so I think he had a better idea. He serves in the IDF. So again, he's been to ceremonies, but for some people, you know, had said, um, had heard about it, I saw documentaries but if all you hear about is, or or, you know, if you talk to people, a lot of the people I've talked to in the Arab world is, yeah, they mention it like a paragraph in a textbook about World War II and you know, so when you think about that, there's no difference between um, the Syrian civil war and the Holocaust or the Armenian genocide and the Holocaust or Rwanda, okay, or Serbia or Mm. and I think the shock for people who are generally aware that something really bad happened, and then to hear and the details and see the magnitude of just one camp facility,
2: mm-hmm.
1: okay, this is something else. This is on a whole different yeah, scale whole of scale. size, of sophistication. It's a scale too. For, for people that have
0: never been there, that are listening to this, you, you have to realize, like Auschwitz. I don't have the exact dimensions to mind, but it's
1: it's a ma- it's like the size of like. You could fit an airport. I couldn't I couldn't believe it. And 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 it makes it a little hard to believe because a lot of the buildings I didn't know this, the 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 wooden buildings were destroyed by local Poles who were desperate for firewood right after the war. And so they dismantled for heating. Mm -hmm. So they dismantled a lot of the buildings and so all you have are chimneys. Chimneys. And then you just see like row after row after row after row of Mm -hmm. what look like piles of bricks. These are the chimneys where stood the, the barracks. And the barracks were, the, I don't know if they were the lucky ones or the, the unfortunate ones, the people who are allowed yeah. to live for a few months.
0: I'm always, I, you know, whenever I'm there, I'm always, the, the, the thing that has completely shocked me every single time is that there's that city that's like literally right there, which is Auschwitz, which is Auschwitz in Polish. Yeah. And the they houses legit just live there. Yeah. Like you imagine growing up there. Do you remember now? saying
2: that's, that on the bus? Dance, you said this on the bus yeah. and then you interrupted. We were reading something, and you were like it was a moment where you protested. You asked the tourist guide, the Polish girl, how on earth do people live here? You were angry. You're like,
1: how do they just casually live here? Yeah, and they do. They they do. And she said, like, you can't blame them. Like, this was their home before Auschwitz. Like, yeah, but okay. the, yeah, but then the death camp happened. Like, <laughs> so, I don't know. We 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 were looking. Mm-hmm. Um, we we're moving to 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 a new place, and one, when we were looking around for places, one of the places I went to see had a view of the cemetery in my city. Now, of course, the cemetery where the vast majority of people die peaceful natural deaths and are buried properly in Jewish. Life. It's very different than the worst death camp in the history yeah, of the of worst humanity. atrocity <laughs> yeah but I, even then i was thinking to myself and you know the real the realtor was like look you have very quiet neighbors you know um we were like that was a joke yeah yeah uh-huh. and, and and we were like i don't know if i'd want to wake up and look at a cemetery like it's every yeah. day of it's my life creepy. you know like so to look at literally the spot where millions of peoples were tortured mm-hmm. and murdered like just 80 years ago like yeah, then you man. have to like teach your kids like hey down the road there's all these tour buses
0: that are coming the reason why is that there's a this I imagine. wonder.
2: Yeah, good point. What yeah. do you right? teach
0: your kids? Either you just completely don't talk about it because you don't want them to have that life or it but wasn't you can't them. I mean it you have the to, Germans, you have it wasn't it. the Polish. It no, I mean like German. you literally do no, not tell, like, tell your kid anything. It's like well, until what age? But can you imagine living there and having the conversation like honey, at what age are we going to tell little Jimmy about the death camp down the street? Do we wait until he's 5? Is it 7? <laughs> How about ten like what, what is it what is it appropriate age to explain to your child what happened down the street and what you know yeah right
2: and what do you tell them i what have no idea you what you tell, tell them, them? You see, i don't Dr. know you see let's share with you something on this trip on the like the closing ceremony they bring the holocaust survivor he's 96 years old and i think his granddaughters are supporting him left and right He can hardly stand hmm. but I've seen also, Dan, you said the same, every documentary, every film, everything I find, I watch it and and real testimonies. This guy was angry as if this happened yesterday. He was still that angry. And I think what instigated this anger is the Polish president, yeah, uh, saying ah, this happened, and it's happening again. Look at the Ukraine. No, look what's happening. And he also said that. You know what else
1: he said? Do you know what else he said? He said, Go I, I don't. I don't remember quoting him, but I, we were all like, our jaws dropped. We we're like, did he just say that? Um, that it wasn't six million. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't Jews that were killed. It was Poles that were killed. Yeah.
2: No, it wasn't only Jews wasn't they wanted to add. They were I Polish first.
0: That's very, that's very important to the Polish people right now. That they uh, yeah. they can't be seen so, somehow. You know, for for the entire 20th century, they understood. You know, maybe they didn't talk about it, but they understood that they perpetrated these things. Like in Germany, for example, this is this is a, a topic. It's like you know, what did Grandma and Grandpa do during World War II? Like people have to face reality, and I think that the German. Society, at least from the outside looking in, and it's like they've had to face these things and face them honestly, and then sort of how does that form an identity for a younger generation, and and whether or not you think that that's been successful or what you feel about that, that's like something that is known. There's not like a giant move on the part of the German government to have some revisionist history about what they were doing during the Second World War.
2: No, that's illegal, even if people have such tendencies. And (laughs) and in Poland... Do they? It's illegal. No, yeah, do they do they have, have the tendency, sense. the revisionist tendency? Yeah, 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 So like, they are neo Nazis as right.
0: well. So like in Poland for the longest time, at least my understanding from from being on trips to Poland from the from the people that would guide the trips was that they would face this reality and they were going through a you know process of trying to understand their history and this and that. And then suddenly, somehow at like you know, twenty sixteen or something like that, twenty seventeen, it became this sort of revisionist like No, no, the Polish people were victims too. They were victims of the Germans. Uh, You know, the the Ukrainians were victims of the Germans. Uh, The Jews that died in Poland, those were Poles. Those were Polish Jews. It's like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Like, you know, when you're the president of Poland, the history of your country. Like yeah, you, you don't be so to, sure
2: you're, so, you're supposed to you're,
0: you're supposed sure. to know you're supposed don't be so you sure you definitely have access to information and people that could tell you if don't you con- to.
1: don't confuse access to information as we talked about in the middle eastern context with actually understanding mm. what is reality but i
0: think the guy's like actually on record at previous times of his career saying things like that were what we would consider to be like our narrative of which
1: is the reality? Now the of official things. Polish line is revisionism. Right, it's um, it, mm. it, it's part of that. You and know, you can't I'll, like disinvite him because he's the president no, of the country that's taking place. in.
2: No, you can't.
1: <laughs> who, who are we talking to? The, uh, was it uh, maybe the the guy the the Polish guide or Pauline who was our Israeli guide or mm. or maybe the cameraman who was actually very knowledgeable? Your Israeli guide's name was Pauline.
2: Yeah, Paul. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he, Pauli- he re- no, Pauline is French originally. Right. Uh, Pauline? Oh, Pauline.
1: Right.
2: Pauline. It's it's, confu- she was it's a confusing. She
1: was great. And actually, I'd love to have her on the show too. Um, in in Hebrew, Poland is Pauline.
2: Ah, okay. That's why, yeah. Now I understand. So
1: when we, so everyone was like, wait, your guide in Pauline was Pauline. You know, it's like.
2: It was, it was, yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, uh, but Paul, the cameraman, what do you Paul want to also say? Paul, <laughs> Paul the cameraman. Uh, oh, I Paul forg- speaks Hebrew and yeah. he does know a lot. He was singing along all the Hebrew songs. This guy
1: was very knowledgeable and very insightful. Um, was a lot more than a cameraman. But um, yeah, if, if you're going to Poland and you need a good cameraman, uh, I'll, the, I'll recommend was like an overall sa- fixer type person. Yeah, he just did a lot of things that okay. he didn't need to, uh, like good things yeah. that he didn't that he Absolutely. didn't need to. But um, I forget who we were talking to, but what what was in Auschwitz f- during the Soviet era, for example? And and this was interesting to me, you know, because it was a national museum before, but it said it wasn't nearly as um, mushka, um, um, invested, uh, as it is today. It wasn't as well done, and, and the entire narrative was not Jewish. It was Nazis against... The Red Army. The, the Red Army against the Soviets, against the Poles, but it was yeah. n- very little mentioned that it was against the Jewish people. And that's interesting because that means for much of recent Polish history until the end of the Iron Curtain that was the narrative and now you're kind of coming back to that narrative that it wasn't against yeah. the Jewish people it was against the Poles the Soviets, anybody that the Germans happened to be fighting right, right yeah um and I find I found that to be to be very interesting because we never think about that we never think about you know uh, we always like doing this on the show but it's like when you look at things from different perspectives, okay. So, in the perspective of the Cold War in the Soviet Union, what is this, the Holocaust story in the in the in the um, in the context of Polish nationalism today? Resurgent Polish nationalism and Eastern European nationalism of countries that were overrun by the Germans, then overrun by the Soviets, and now find themselves. Um, you know expressing their own national identities what is the narrative and it's not the narrative we have in Israel it's not the narrative that Germany has or the west has you know, you know to to think about narratives and perspectives you know it, it, it really differs from from where you sit from where you come from from who gets to frame what is the narrative
2: not not only that after the second world war there was a process where these nazis were hunted where this, like, the legal process has never happened before. They had to, even as judges, they had to come up with ways. How to you judge them based on what? So to design new systems, to hold them accountable, where depends on the law, or in which country. It was a long process. And the Holocaust survivors, they didn't want to talk about. It. That right. I hear very often yes. again. They just wanted to recover. And some brave ones, and there were projects and funding where they were invited to talk about it. That said, I want to say something. Even you, Dan, you said that to you it's hard. Many people said, like, going back, especially as a Jew, there. And I remember Nia, when he broke in tears, looking at one page in the Book of the Dead, one page, his family members. Then we turn the page. Like, he's like, look, my family. We turn the page and it goes on, oh my God. on. And then he broke into tears. It is hard. Maybe even for us, I didn't lose anybody there. I feel it's something which happened to me as a human being by people like me. For you as Jews, it hurts. But for the survivors to go to Auschwitz and talk, that commands a lot of respect.
1: I can't imagine. I, I, I you know, I, I can't, you know, it was very, you saw me, you saw me. I broke down. I broke down when we got there. And um, it was a very, very difficult, surreal and difficult um, experience to, to have literally survived it. Or, or if you had, you know, if you're yeah. the child of survivors and, and you know, um, by the way I didn't go in to look at the book um, I know I probably would have found a page with my family as well um, it, I I don't know I don't know how you do that um, yeah. I want to talk to you for a second about denial in the Arab world because to think I mean I, I, I have an answer that, that I've tried to understand from people but why is Holocaust denial so prevalent in the Arab world? Um, mm-hmm. And I'll add to that, that there, first of all, the Holocaust obviously happened pre, pre-Israel, pre and Muslims in Europe were known to have aided the Jews.
2: Yeah.
1: In the Balkans, in North Africa, the king of Morocco is very famously known to have tried to protect the Moroccan Jewish community. Um, yeah. And and uh, the scholar Robert Satloff of the Washington Institute, I think he wrote a book in order to partially to try to fight, or I think entirely to try to fight Holocaust denial in the Arab world by saying, uh, actually, you guys should be proud of most of yeah. Arabs and Muslims and what they did. So, why 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 is it so prevalent in the Arab world, or maybe in I the think Muslim it's
2: world? Yeah, in yeah, in both the Muslim and the Arab world. Uh, because if you think of Iran, it's not an Arab country. Right. And Ahmadinejad say, said bluntly, it did not happen. Uh, it did not happen. And I think it's part of um, the process of demonizing the Jew. I study Islamic studies as well. Uh, what's happening in the Islamic and Arab worlds is political. It's, it's a political battle among Muslims, and it's about power in this region. They don't want to share this power with the Jew. This is why the Jew is demonized, is alienated, and having sympathy with the Jew, again, sets a foundation for a bridge. Once I talk to them, I cannot wish death upon them. It doesn't happen anymore. Once we eat together, I mean, it's symbolic and it sounds like a cliche, but once we talk to one another, I can't hate you. If someone tells me Benny wants to kill your family, I don't believe it. And not talking to you at all, that's um, also deliberate. That's why we have a very strict anti-normalization laws, uh, forbidding person-to-person contact Why would people go to jail if they speak to Israelis? What happens if I speak to an Israeli? I don't have state secrets. And it's not automatic that every time you talk to an Israeli you get recruited by the Mossad. It's also a naive idea spread in the Arab and Islamic world. Um, Depriving um, the Jews from that moment in history not giving them uh, the right to to mourn, not acknowledging their catastrophe, their tragedy, not allowing the Arabs to sympathize with them, helps the Arabs only think that these are monsters. And monsters cannot be victims. Hmm. You are not a victim. You are the assailant. We are the victims. This is the narrative, and we keep pushing forward. And if we don't talk to Israelis, nobody will tell us that this is bullshit. Thanks to the internet, we talk to them and people start open, opening their eyes and thinking, no, the Israelis don't buy it, the Jews don't buy it. When it comes to me, people I like meet, Judaism is fascinating. It's also a monotheistic religion. We have a lot in common. Uh, the Quran talks a lot about the, the Jews. So we can reconcile. Just like Nia Bombs said on this trip, it's a small country. Conflict is political. We can solve it. We just have to work for it. Stop saying you can't solve it. It's like the Middle East conflict. In our head, it's something impossible. It is possible. We just have to work
1: for it. Yeah. You mentioned uh, when Trump and Kushner came in and a lot of people raised their eyebrows and said, you know, sometimes all you need in order to solve an intractable problem is somebody who never didn't really know yeah. about it and didn't think didn't nobody told them it was intractable to begin with yes you know Yeah. It, it's like okay just quit repeating that mantra and maybe it's not so intractable like again i'm not exactly. saying it's easy like, but um you know sometimes sometimes too much self-awareness is our biggest uh is our biggest stumbling block. well Absolutely. it's it, you yeah. put things yeah. on a pedestal Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything the the conflicts is it's such a you know there's a huge pedestal. Yeah, can't be solved. Well, then we can't solve it. We can't solve it. It's too too complicated. Minds are entrenched. Um. Yeah, it was definitely it was definitely an interesting trip, and um, we we we're going to use this as a platform to to try to. Well, uh, you're to try to work towards reconciliation and towards uh, you're segueing into what I'm saying, but like okay, yeah, like what now? What now? So we we had a meeting, um, with uh, with Rowan and with the other people who went on the trip and the forum, and um, we have. I don't want to announce anything quite yet. We're not quite there yet, but there are plans to to take this kind of thinking that Ruan brought forth, um, and how do we how do we make this an operating work plan? How do we make this a program? Yeah. Um, I I I agree that. Yeah, um, even though we have been proved, um, again with, with in this specific conflict here between with, between us and the Palestinians, that even if they know us and talk to us, and they still try to kill us, um, and I think that was one of the stories that happened the other night was the, if I read correctly in the news, the guy either stop stop yeah, he stopped, gave them a ride he gave them a ride. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay. Um, b- but I think in the big picture, um, I either agree with you, Rowan, or I really want to agree with you. I'm not sure which one yet. Um, that once you, you recognize the other's pain, the other's tragedy, um, have some sympathy, and then you can start you know, peeling away the layers of demonization of someone. But you know what, though? Here's the looking in
0: from the outside for Rwanda to have gone down her path she needed to in in your in your speaking about you like you're not here you're here for you to go down (laughs) for you to go down that path you had to be in a place at a specific place in a specific time where you were forced to confront the reality you were in that place with the seems like they were hasidic jewish people and you had to you know you had that panic attack and you had to confront it and what we're talking about now is when you're trying to reach thousands and thousands and millions of people and have them have some sort of a shift and meet people, you know, I don't know if you could have the same interaction online. You know, you you have to, you felt you it kind of like, okay, we could say like if you were believing in destiny, you know, it, it, it happened to you because it was meant to happen to you in your life. You know, this was the trajectory that you needed to take. But it also just happened to you, right? Like you happened to be there. You started, you know, you wanted to have a wine store, like, so you were at a certain place. You went to France, and you started studying. You know, so it's like you accidentally fell into this, so to speak.
1: So I mean, yeah that that's and why she's at the forefront of this. But right. But what what I'm thinking of is, and you mentioned this earlier, social media, the power of social media, the things we can do today is is okay. The transformation might not be as strong, but you can reach a lot of people really fast on social media, and you can do it for good and for bad. And by the way, you know, I was thinking about what you were saying earlier when you were. Cringing at some of those things that we saw, and I was too. And a lot of the people were taking pictures and and you know so on social media all the time. And, and and my first reaction was, really like, like just it seems like they weren't in the moment. But then on second thought, I realized, oh no, tens of thousands of people are watching this now. Yeah. And 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 that's really powerful. And it, I think it's a generational thing also. But it, it's it's really powerful what was happening at the same time because. Some of our friends on the delegation, especially the younger ones, who were basically live-streaming the entire trip on social media, they have a lot of followers. Yeah. And and um, it's powerful. The, the amount of instantaneous reach you can have. Imagine if we had 50 people, 50 social media influencers, with hundreds of thousands of followers in the Arab world, coming on a trip like this. You know? Like, imagine the instantaneous... Right. Uh, can I push back on one, for one, for, for, on You're one thing? You're going
0: to. No, because I agree with you, and I, oh. and I think it's great. I just If I'm playing the devil's advocate, I would say and we've had this conversation with other people on the show when we talk about the impact of social media mm. or what social media does and how it works and this and that, and it's like that that assumes that that's going out to people who are not already in that echo right, chamber. Right, right, right. Okay, and in reality, what seems to be happening a lot with social media, and, and this is quite often in the news these days because of Elon Musk and Twitter and things like that, but it's like, Are you even able to reach people that aren't Mm. within your same sort of we'll call it interest bubble? Okay, so are you able to go online and reach Hezbollah supporters? Are are they following the same areas that you are engaged with? Are is what the content that you are putting out ever going to reach hardcore people, or even not hardcore people, but people that happen to be within the sphere of those groups of Mm interests online? And, and then gets into this sort of conversation of, you know, are you convincing the unconvinced? Are you changing minds or are you just speaking to the choir? Are you just preaching to the choir?
2: Okay. Um, two points. One, I did not look for Judaism. Judaism came to me. It was a coincidence. Fair enough. Today, those who are, uh, we are trying to, to reach, um, you're saying if they live casually somewhere nice in Bahrain, Why are they interested in what we have to offer? We're talking about um, a huge amount of people suffering. These people who are suffering are interested in a new vision. What does the future have to offer? So if we tell them, okay, if we live in peace among each other, stop persecuting minorities, Live and let live. Let's find a new pact for all of us so that we, we stop this wave of displacement of suffering, like Yuval Noah Harari talks about it very nicely. If people are suffering, no matter why, we have a problem which needs to be addressed. One. Two. It is very interesting. I know we have cookies, we have systems, so like the people who follow us are selected. Algorithms. Absolutely. So a few years ago, when I started studying Hebrew, um, I made my Facebook page public. Not that I have a great following and not that I have the time to, to deal with that, but I knew that I have to at some point. So my face is public. Anyone can add me. I accept them unless they really, they're really nasty. Those people watch what I do just because they're opposed to what I do. From time to time, they jump in throw an insult whatever this is important and my nice friends tell me you are strangely patient Mm -hmm. and I'm like no first they don't insult me personally if they don't know me they call me names I really couldn't care less we cannot preach to the converted what's the point we can have a nice chat the three of us now agree on a lot of stuff and then We change nothing. So we need, like you say, Benny, to reach Hezbollah fans. And we do that when we criticize them, when we follow them, when we challenge their narrative, their stories. And uh, a lot of people like Emily, who we met um, on this trip in Poland, she takes this bit, this item, and challenges it. It's not true. There is. uh, This is not what happened. We have to do that. And for that we have to sacrifice um or dedicate time dedicate time we need younger people like uh, uh, what's his uh, we have this uh, young fantastic bahraini guy
1: yeah um hassan
2: hassan he's fantastic we need people with such an energy to live stream stuff and to follow the news And younger people will listen, will watch because they're skeptical or they disagree. But then when you show them some information, like go to Israel and show them some Arabs who are happily living with other Israelis or, or, or this is where it gets interesting for an Arab living somewhere in a province in Egypt. This Israeli Arab has medical insurance. I know it's a silly thing. Most of the Arab world, has no idea what this is. They have no safety net. They're desperate. They're angry. They're hostile. Show them or allow them to imagine a different future where you can be happy. And we can agree to disagree and still be friends. It's a lot of work, but it's possible. It's feasible. We can do it. We have to commit to it without social media. I would tell you this is insane it yeah. will take 200 years but yeah. we have social media and a lot of people write to me privately to say well done so they are for peace with israel but those people are the quiet ones the bystanders you know right. they're waiting once something happens you'll be surprised okay
1: yeah no um my thinking is in line with that and uh, that's part of the strategy that that's uh, part of what we're trying to do and um yeah, let's you know, let's say somebody has 1000 followers, 5000 followers, 10000 followers. Some of them are going to have been converted, some of them are going to be undecided and yeah. and their mind has changed when they see this and they hear that and this and and you know, change is not instant, but it's really close to it with what you can do with social media. Um and uh I think if if I certainly didn't have the the hope I did and I think one you can sense our energy in people like us then then uh, the world will look a little different, I hope. Just you know? pray to God you don't get shadow banned. Yeah, right? <laughs> what does that mean? Is that a new term? That's a real thing. What is that? What is shadow that? banning
0: is when a social media platform will decide that whatever oh, they you, don't like you are, anymore. they don't like you, oh. but you haven't necessarily okay. broken a explicit rule, so they just, what's the word? Uh, they decrease your... Uh, the, your algorithm. Yeah, yeah the yeah. algorithm doesn't prefer you. Interesting. So yeah. It's like you can't search and find you anymore. So. so,
1: all right. Well.
2: Okay. We'll see. If this happens, we can uh, uh, tell the world about it on a different platform. Yeah. We will have backup platform, exactly. let's Back- say. Okay? Platforms.
1: Exactly, exactly. So, um, yeah, the next couple of weeks are going to be insane for me. I know that. Mm-hmm. What What are you up to now? What's What are your plans? What are your – where are you going to be the next uh, – month two months whatever
2: um university I have a lot to do um and I plan to come to Israel let's stay in touch and see what we can do because uh, yeah have you been here before no I haven't ah, when great. I planned the visit especially to meet my as a love of my life Yossi mm-hmm. my dear mentor um COVID Uh, like the pandemic started, it was postponed, but this summer, and you have no idea how many strangers tell me, no, you're sleeping here, no, you're sleeping (laughs) with us, no, you're staying here. And a guy whose uh, mom and aunts, they're Syrians, I asked him if I can interview them for my book uh, to draw parallels between the story of the Syrian refugees and think of the Jews who had to leave and stuff like that. And I asked them, would they accept And he said, I'll ask them. And then he contacted me and said, my mom and aunt, they would love to talk to you. And they want to ask you, what's your favorite Syrian food they would like to cook for you? (laughs)
1: What? What what is your favorite Syrian food?
2: I don't know. But if they can make kibbeh, any Israeli wants to make kibbeh for me, I'll try. Done. Done. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Done, done, done. I, yeah. you, you know what I made this shabbat actually? I was with my um my Iraqi family on uh, Independence Day and um I don't know why it clicked in my head but uh, I decided I'm going to make tibet for shabbat. Have you heard of this dish? No, it's um t-bit is a traditional Iraqi Jewish food that cooks all night all shabbat and it's um it's a whole chicken stuffed with meat and rice and it's got like hell and baharat and um, oh my
2: god and then yes. it's surrounded hell, and
1: then it's surrounded oh. by meat and rice i'm feeling tired thinking about this and then it's i uh, a, i put this i food, put this together and i surrounded food. it with stuffed zucchinis which is not traditional but it is it's a, it's traditional just not in this dish and then i would let it cook all night on the plata and uh, it was really good <laughs> Dan,
2: Dan, I'm coming to eat at your place. i invited myself done. now. Yeah.
1: Done, done, done. Did you eat it all? Uh, no, we have <laughs> some left. Actually, if you want something, to try some. I'll, I'll send you home with some. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I ha-
2: Have one stuffed zucchini for me, Benny, okay? Will do, Amazing. promise.
1: Um, it was very, very good. Um, no, we've got a crazy. I'm flying tomorrow um, to the US for another speaking tour. We've got a group yeah. that's going to Morocco. We've got a group of Pakistani... Pakistanis um, from America, but also directly from Pakistan, coming Pakistan. to Israel.
2: awesome. Yeah.
1: Coming to Israel. Um, by the time this episode comes out, they'll have been here. But uh, we are also trying to make history in that regards, too. Um, it's, it's, and we're moving soon. And, and you're moving soon.
0: We're all moving.
1: Everyone's moving. Keep
0: uh, moving. Keep moving. Change will come. Yes. Did you ever open the wine store?
2: Um, No, because the war didn't stop until now. Ah. You know, wine, uh, wine bar and Daesh. No, probably probably not good. Uh, Are you
0: still into wine?
2: Absolutely. I studied for a year in France and I had a cafe here in uh, Germany. And then I decided, no, what I really want is peace in the Middle East.
1: We will. No, um, I
2: sold the business, and this is what we're gonna do.
1: We will. First of all, let me know when you're coming, and we'll take you on a wine tour.
0: Oh, definitely.
2: You've already promised me. That's I did. Checked. I pro-
1: I promised, and it's gonna and it'll happen, and um, and then we can start uh, doing wine collaborations between. Imagine the wine collaborations you could do. That'd with, be
0: very good wine collaborations. Would
1: be. Um, Lebanon has tremendous wine. Industry.
0: Does it? Yeah. yeah.
1: Still, yes. a, amazing wines.
2: Yeah.
1: All right learn something the
2: future different. is bright
1: the future is wine <laughs> the future is bright and, <laughs> oh, <laughs> and bright okay. and alcoholic the future is wine uh, Rowan Osman thank you so much for being on the show tonight
2: thank you guys it was awesome
1: you thank are you. you are inspiring and eloquent and um, and fun to talk to and Benny it's been a while it's good to talk to you again good to, also. Good to talk to everybody and uh, we will see everybody. Well, not you, Ron, but we will see you, Benny, next time on Juonst. Take care. (laughs)
2: Nice meeting you. You as well. Bye-bye. Bye, -bye. Bye, guys.
0: Juonst is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and
1: Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juonst.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in. And we'll see you back for the next episode of Juwonst.